0: Democrats were approaching the finish line, but did Joe Manchin just throw out there a banana peel? The lead starts right now. President Biden is in Europe, pushing Russia and China to do more to combat climate change. But back here in D.C., it's members of his own party standing in the way of an agreement. Then an alarming new poll showing a third of Republicans in the U.S. believe that they might need to resort to violence to save the U.S., and that's Just one of the troubling results. And another airline hit by massive cancellations. And if you make it on the plane, you might be met by aggressive passengers. The serious new action proposed by the Transportation Secretary ahead. Hello and welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia now publicly refusing to commit to vote for the president's economic and climate agenda without seeing the final text first and working through some issues. Now, the House of Representatives had hoped to vote on this legislation this week, and now it's not clear that that's going to happen. The timing could not be worse for President Biden, who is trying to rebuild trust with world leaders at the COP26 climate talks in Scotland. President Biden today apologizing to the world, saying U.S. actions under President Trump put America, quote, behind the eight ball. Biden eager to convince his peers in Scotland that America is recommitted to slowing the warming of the planet. And world leaders speaking with increasing urgency have been begging for action.
1: Enough of killing ourselves with carbon. Enough of treating nature like a toilet. Enough of burning and drilling and mining our way deeper. We are digging our own graves. If
2: we fail, they will not Forgive us. They will know that Glasgow was the historic turning point when history failed to turn.
0: The collective goal limiting global warming to one and a half degrees Celsius, scientists saying that that's the critical threshold beyond which the world must not cross. Our team is covering these stories from both sides of the Atlantic. Caitlin Collins, live in Edinburgh, and Manu Raju, live on Capitol Hill in D.C. Let's go to you first, Manu. The president's selling his agenda in Scotland, but his fate is in the hands of U.S. lawmakers right now, or perhaps more accurately, in the hands of just
1: one lawmaker. Yeah, Joe Manchin making clear that he might not ever be willing to support... Joe Biden's larger economic agenda, the $1.75 trillion plan. He said, I will vote for a good plan, but I will may never vote for a plan that he believes would hurt the U.S. economy. He said that he had concerns that this bill is full of, quote, gimmicks, that its true cost to the economy is more than $1.75 trillion. He raised concerns about the growth of social programs that are outlined in this bill. He also made clear his concerns on opposition to the growth of Medicare. That would include hearing coverage for the first time under this proposal. He had been concerned about this impacting the solvency of that key entitlement program, and overall, he wants more time. He says there needs to be more time to review the details of this proposal, look at how it could impact everything from the debt to the to inflation to how the economy is growing at this time, which raises major questions about whether his support is even gettable at this point and whether they would have to pare back this bill substantially, even further to get him behind this. Now, at the same time as there are concerns among Democrats that maybe Joe Manchin might not be there at the end of the day, there are signs, Jake, that the separate infrastructure bill, $1.2 trillion for roads, bridges, waterways, and broadband, that they make, this may have new life in the House. The key progressive leader, Premier Ajayipal, Le told CNN earlier today that, she, that the progressives are willing to support the infrastructure bill potentially as soon as this week, assuming the negotiations on that larger bill are finished. And those are getting close to being done. So she thinks both bills, Jake, could pass the House this week, regardless of where Joe Manchin and Kyrsten Sinema stand. Before, they had been demanding those two senators commit to the larger bill. Now they're saying it's up to Joe Biden to get those two members on board. And they said they're just going to move forward here. So a sign at least one aspect of the president's proposal could become law. Jake.
0: And Caitlin Collins, how is the White House responding to this news from Senator Manchin? And how does Manchin's does it does Manchin's announcement change Biden's standing with his global counterparts?
3: Well, Jake, it's certainly unfortunate timing for the White House because that is precisely the argument the president is trying to make here today. And he was apologizing for steps that President Trump took at the time when he was in office when it came to withdrawing the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accords. And he was trying to make the argument that the U.S. is back at the table and they are going to lead when it comes to climate change. And now, of course, they've gotten this statement from President or from Senator Manchin saying uh, he's not ready yet to fully support President Biden's agenda here. And the White House responded pretty quickly with Jen the press secretary, putting out a statement saying that Senator Manchin says he's prepared to support a plan that combats inflation, is fiscally responsible, and will create jobs. They quote 17 Nobel Prize winning economists who say this plan will reduce inflation. And Jake, they say as a result, we remain confident that the plan will gain Senator Manchin's support. Of course, Jake, the key phrase there is will gain. That means the White House realizes Senator Manchin has not yet expressed his support or thrown his support behind this plan. And remember that is something that President Biden was hoping to get before he even came, not only to the G20 summit in Rome, but of course to this major climate summit. And it does kind of reveal something about what happened last night during a press conference that we had with President Biden, where he was leaving the room and we asked the president whether or not he had gotten the sign off from Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema on this $1.75 trillion plan, Jake. And you can see as he was leaving the room, he flashed a thumbs up to the reporters when we asked that question twice. And, of course, later the White House walked that back, saying that it, the president was uh, just saying he is, feels like the bill is moving in a good direction, wasn't saying explicitly that those two had signed on. And clearly, Jake, we know why, because Senator Manchin made clear today he has not signed off on that yet.
0: All right, Caitlin and Manu, thank you so much. Let's discuss with my panel. Uh, Laura, let me start with you. How big of a roadblock is this uh, for the Democrats? I really, honestly, until Manchin gave his press conference, I thought the Democrats were going to pass both of these uh, this week.
4: Well, if you listen to what Manchin's saying, a lot of his concerns are ones that he's laid out before over the past few months. And so I was just texting with a progressive senator who said, look, Manchin is going to Manchin. They think he'll ultimately be there in the end. The senator noted that he was there on the rescue plan. He was there on impeachment. He was there on ACA. So the White House right now and progressives and House leadership are moving forward with their plan to potentially pass the Build Back Better plan along with the infrastructure bill as early as this week. Uh, And progressives in the House are saying that they're on board as long as those are happening in tandem. That appears to be the change from last week when progressives were saying, we're not for infrastructure at this point, despite being pressured by the White House. But the only thing that seems to have changed is that they feel as though as long as they're happening simultaneously, back to back in the House, that they're ready to move forward on, for sure. And
0: Hillary, this is interesting because one of the things you hear from uh, progressive leaders, like Congresswoman Jayapal, is we're not worried. Joe Biden, President Biden, has assured us that the 50 votes are going to be there—50 plus one, Kamala Harris, the vice president—and that's all. In other words, they're 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 not expressing anger with Mansion and Cinema, and they're basically saying, Biden, you promised us this, and we expect you to deliver. Uh, which is, I guess, wise, but why?
5: Well, I can tell you the White House today is not worried about what Joe Manchin said. They don't, like Laura said, they do not think that he said anything different than he's been saying all along. And, you know, look, the good thing for reporters is that Joe Manchin, when he hasn't been in front of the camera for a couple of days, he's willing to go back out there, but let's not pretend he's saying anything new. He's not saying anything new. He was always around the same amount of money. He always had inflationary concerns. He always wanted to make sure it's been paid for. And that's where we are. And that's what this framework does. The thing that has changed is actually something that he has been for all along, which is a um, pushing back on prescription drug prices, which might be a little extra push for progressives um, if you can cap out of pocket um, co-pays and things like that. And that's what um, Kirsten Cinema is talking to Nancy Pelosi about. So we've got you know, Bernie talking to Joe and Cinema talking to Pelosi and Jayapal might get her prescription drug benefit. Like, yeah. this is coming together. The White
6: House is confident.
0: Okay. I don't know that I share their confidence. What do you make of it, Altea?
6: I, I, what I make of it is Manchin's comments come at a time that Yes, progressive. Well, Democrats in general want to move forward. But there was also negotiating still ongoing about things like prescription drug costs and allowing Medicare Right, Bernie Sanders. And then we're saying
0: we're going to keep trying to push stuff into the bill.
6: Right. And so I think that this creates pressure to not do anything that expands the bill, which puts that prescription drug cost stuff in jeopardy or changes the bill substantially. But also there's risk because if Democrats feel pressure to try to work with Manchin to make tweaks that perhaps make him more confident, then that could cause progressives and also voters to say, now it's watered down to the point, what's the point?
0: Ramesh, I want you to take a listen to what Senator Manchin uh, said in his statement, in, in which he's basically accusing Democrats of hiding the true cost of this legislation. Take a listen.
7: As more of the real details outlined, the basic framework are released. What I see are shell games, budget gimmicks, that make the real cost of the so-called $1.75 trillion bill estimated to be almost twice that amount if the full
0: time is run out, if you extended it permanently. I mean, it sounds like something you might have written. (laughs) Shell games and budget gimmicks. I'm not saying he's wrong, but, I mean, is that accurate, you think?
8: There's a long tradition of (laughs) shell games and budget gimmicks uh, in this sort of legislation. But this is why I think that it was it's going to take more than tweaks. If you want to fund a bunch of programs and have it fit this $1.75 trillion box and you want to do it on a permanent basis, you're going to have to cut out some of the things that the Democrats say that they want to do. So that's going to take more than tweaks. It's going to take a fundamental redesign of the legislation. And then if he also wants time to study the impact, to run the numbers, to go through the text, I, I
5: think any idea that this is going to happen this week is is off the table.
0: well, what were you going to say? Well,
5: I was going to say, you know, the only troubling thing about what he just said is that it's probably going to be cut into a television commercial at some point used against Democrats in the midterms. Um, But other than that, it wasn't really anything new. And so, again, you know, we're in this position where um, uh, cinema and mansion seem to want to be fighting for who's the last person that reporters have to talk to or that, you know, the president has to talk to. But that's what this is. There, there really is a framework here, and I, I think we're there.
8: The reason may maybe nothing new, though, is maybe he means it. Yeah. Well, one of the things that Manchin is
0: saying here is I don't want progressives to push me to do this. It's not going to work. And I, I want to run some video. Uh, Senator Kirsten Sinema, who's the other holdout Democrat on this issue, um, confirms to me that the video we're about to see is, is real. She was at a wedding of a friend. And some progressive protesters showed up at the wedding and disrupted Senator Sinema's friend's wedding uh, outside the wedding. Take a listen. Keller,
8: we don't like what you're really doing I, to our I, country. not about you invite us? You know what? Keller. Keller, I, I don't
9: disagree with any of you people with so your point out. of
10: view and your rights. It's my job.
11: One hour,
0: please. That's the mother of the bride. The the, the couple, uh, from what I understand, is not a political couple at all. They just the bride happens to be friends with Senator Cinema. Do progressives, and I, this is a small group of people, mm-hmm. but do people like to think that this is effective? That this does anything other than anger somebody like Senator Cinema?
4: I'm not sure that they think that it's necessarily effective, but I think that there's a lot of frustration among Democrats and more left-leaning uh, Democrats that. That they see a product and they see these provisions that they really want to see passed. I mean, a number of the provisions, when you take them out individually, can have some 70 or 80 percent support across the country. And that it's two senators from West Virginia and from Arizona. It's a product of a 50-50 Senate, uh, which a lot more Democratic voters are realizing. That if they want some of these proposals, then clearly a 50-50 Senate is not going to get them that.
6: And also the the protesters that are following cinema around, it's not just that she's considered, you know, a centrist who stood in the way of some of these policies, but that she has not really been as transparent as some of her constituents and progressive activists would like her to be on where she stands, period. Mm-hmm. And so, again, not saying it's right for a wedding to be disrupted or for her to be followed to the bathroom. But what the activists on the left are saying is that's all they can do because she won't speak. She isn't transparent. She isn't engaging people to let people know where she stands. And
4: unlike in West Virginia, I also think that a number of progressives and activist groups in Arizona think that Cinema is potentially uh, weak in terms of her re-election, that they could potentially primary her there, that there's more room for that in Arizona than clearly West Virginia where Trump won by some 30 to 40 points.
0: Yeah, but I think uh, an event like that might actually cause Kirsten Cinema to well, I she mean, she's It's not
4: going to change yeah. her
5: one way or it's another. It's not going to change her, but it um, also might trigger
0: sympathy t- for her.
5: Um, she she's not seeking sympathy. Right. I mean, I think it, the the her I you know, and we we have another senator, Democratic senator from Arizona, who takes different positions than she does. So it's not that it's about politics for her. I think her biggest mistake, honestly, is that she doesn't um, make herself accessible to. The public in the way that Joe Manchin does. You know where Joe Manchin stands. You know what his values are. Like them or not like them, you know that you either have to defeat him or support him. Period. Whereas, cinema, I think, is much more reticent. She doesn't talk about these issues from a values perspective. He's not running
0: around doing town and, halls or talking, or even in the, in to the,
5: reporters, really, and yeah. about what her what her perspective is on. Tax cuts, or drug benefits, or social programs. I think that it, I think she'd benefit from that. Honestly, M- Ramesh? Yeah, I think I, I think that's right. Actually, although I I am sympathetic to
8: the substance. I don't think any sympathetic- I don't think
0: anybody here supports in yeah. disrupting the wedding. I mean, right? But, yeah, yeah, mean, yeah, just right, to yeah. Be yeah. clear.
8: Absolutely right. You know, and I think that it's the kind of tactic that makes normal apolitical people like that that couple think I don't want to have anything to do with these people. You know, I'm definitely I don't know where I stand on politics, maybe, but I'm not with those people. Uh, and I do think that. That sort of thing is something that people who are not totally in sync with the public ought to give more attention to when they think about how to be an activist.
0: All right. To be continued. uh, Thanks one and all for being here. Appreciate it. Coming up next, a stunning number of Americans who are buying into some extreme conspiracy theories. Plus, actor and former White House official Cal Penn joins us live to discuss his revealing new memoir. Stay with us. In our politics lead, the big lie about election fraud, deranged conspiracy theories, other corrosive fantasies, all of them flourishing. And now a shocking number of Republicans, according to a new survey, believe, quote, true American patriots might have to resort to violence to, quote, save the United States. It's all according to this stunning new poll from the nonpartisan Public Religion Research Institute. Let's discuss with the organization's CEO and founder, Robert Jones. Thank you so much for being here albeit under these troubling circumstances. Let's start with this first number. One third of Republicans believe true American patriots might need to resort to violence, quote, in order to save our country. You see 17% of independents, 11% of Democrats. Save America from what?
12: Yeah, you know, I think what we've seen really is, uh, you know, the last uh, really four or five years of President Trump, I think essentially saying your country has been stolen from you, right? And, And this sense of uh, we, we need to kind of reclaim our country and the whole make America great again thing, I think, plays into that. And so when you get that, I think it really is a sense that the, the country's been stolen and from whom, if you really unpack it, it really is white Anglo-Saxon Christians. Right? That really is who that that group uh, is is most animated uh, by by that message. Uh, that's the vast majority, Republicans are 7 in 10, white and Christian Uh, today, and about a third white evangelical. And that's the group that is really most animated by this message.
0: Uh, Yeah, and I think what's uh, stunning is not just they think that the country was stolen, which obviously it has not been stolen, but Mm. the idea that they think violence, three out of 10, think violence will be acceptable. The poll also found among the 60% of white evangelicals who believe the election was stolen from uh, from Trump, which is obviously not true, 39% believe that true American patriots may have to resort to violence in order to save the country. So, 39% of white evangelicals who think the election was stolen—that's a lot.
12: Yeah, it's a majority. First of all, it, it is the only religious group that thinks, uh, among whom a majority thinks the election was stolen, or white, white and stolen, evangelicals, right, who voted 84% for Trump, right? So they're all in for Trump. Uh, they believe this, and then that I, I think, if you especially unpack this, right? This is a religion that, like, not that long ago, talked about itself as the moral values, right, of right. the country, like that kind of and turn the other cheek, and all of that stuff, and yet here we are, a major mainstream religion uh, that has been all in for Trump, and we have, among those who believe the the election was stolen, which is most of them, uh, nearly four in ten, saying they can imagine it being justified to resort to violence, to assure their own political outcome.
0: We know there's this deep divide um, between those who trust right-wing media outlets, um, such as Fox News, and those who, who don't. Um, your poll shows there's even a divide between those who trust Fox News the most and those who trust other MAGA media outlets more, like One American News Network or, or NewsMac. Uh, let's take a look at this. 97% mm. of far right news fans, such as OAN, believe the election was stolen. For Fox, it's 82% of Fox News fans believe the election was stolen. Um, both the numbers are obviously very alarming. Neither one is acceptable since the election was not stolen. Um, but what does that tell you?
12: You know, I, I think it tells you that not only have we, for a long time, we've been thinking about Fox News as, a, and we've been measuring that. And what we found during the Trump era is that we started having to actually measure one more click to the right. And that was organizations that get built up like One America News, that became kind of Trump's mouthpiece in many in many ways during his administration. And we're seeing that that real effect uh, show up particularly among Republicans. As you said, it, it just escalates. So uh, among you see it among the people who believe the election was stolen, you also see that, uh, uh, that escalation among people who think that violence uh, is going to be going to be justified. It goes up to 4 in 10 among those who most trust far, among Republicans who most trust far-right news sources. It's 4 in 10 who think violence may be necessary.
0: I think it was December 2016 that I first heard this Pizzagate nonsense, which mm. is kind of the precursor of the QAnon nonsense, the idea that uh, Democrats, liberals are all conspiring, not just to steal elections, which oh. they're not doing, but also to eat and have satanic rituals involving children. I mean, just crazy stuff. Um, one in five Americans believe in this core tenet of QAnon, quote, there is a storm coming soon. I don't know that they necessarily knew the significance, but they think there is a storm coming soon. One in six believe that the U.S. government is controlled by a group of Satan-worshipping pedophiles who run a global child sex trafficking operation.
12: I mean, what? What? I know. So I can tell you as a social scientist, I never thought I'd be in the position of actually writing that question, right? Of Even conceiving a question like that. But here we are and, and it shows up. Uh, yeah. That, and if you put all those questions together, including the violence question, it's nearly one in five Americans and it's a quarter of Republicans and a quarter of white evangelicals who believe all three of those things uh, put together, that violence, a storm coming is going to sweep aside the elites and this idea, this crazy idea, about a, a kind of group of pedophiles that are controlling the government.
0: Yeah, I mean, all of these are kind of crazy ideas, but that's the craziest, I think it's fair to say. And w- what is the reason? Is it just because, not just, is it because Republican officials, MAGA media, others are out there either stating this and not getting pushed back or hinting about it?
12: And I mean, w- what is the reason that so many people are believing yeah. all these lies? I do think one problem is that there has not been a clear no from Republican elites just to say, no, right? This is not true. We've seen a lot of hemming and hawing, a lot of winking and nodding. I think that's a big part of the problem. I think the other problem here that the deeper crisis is that for many white evangelical Christians, uh, white Christians even broader, um, there's a legitimation crisis, an identity crisis happening, right? That they thought of the country as really God's promised land for white Christians. And as that has broken down, the country's gotten more diverse. Clearly that's not what America is today. It has created this deep, deep identity crisis and has created this opening for these wild conspiracy theories to explain the unexplainable. And that unexplainable piece is, how can this country not be, quote unquote, ours?
0: Robert Jones, a lot to think about there. Thank you so much. Uh, This Friday, join me for a CNN special report. Trumping democracy, an American coup. It starts at 9 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Coming up, a major new milestone in the number of vaccinations in the U.S. And what seems to have helped Stay with us. Topping our health lead, an incredible milestone. Good news. The White House says 80% of U.S. adults have now gotten at least one COVID shot. Good news for everyone. This is leading to clear trends in the right direction. Over the past month, the U.S. has seen a 35% drop in cases, a 32% drop in deaths. And as vaccine mandates kick in across the country, Alexandra Field finds the holdouts are way outnumbered.
1: More proof the mandates are working. Since we announced the mandate just days ago, 22,472 new vaccinations among our city employees. 91%
10: 91% of New York City's municipal workforce is now vaccinated. Police, EMS, sanitation workers, and the fire department all seeing big gains in vaccination rates since the mayor announced the mandate 12 days ago.
1: Anyone who hasn't so far, there's still a chance to fix it. Come in, get vaccinated, come back to work because we need everyone to do their job and we need everyone to be safe. <laughs>
10: 9,000 city workers who didn't get the shot are now at home on unpaid leave. Mayor Bill de Blasio says there have been no interruptions to police, sanitation and fire services, and no firehouses have closed. That's even with 2,300 firefighters calling out sick today, double to triple the usual number. The FDNY says it's seen higher than normal numbers of sick outs since the mandate was announced. The firefighters union still opposing the mandate. We're hoping
2: fire coverage is not uh, impinged upon, but it's very hard to say
10: this time. The battle over mandates is playing out against the backdrop of a big milestone. The White House says 80% of adults in the U.S. have received their first shot. Nearly 70% of adults are now fully vaccinated. New COVID cases continue to fall. Hospitalizations are under 50,000 for the first time in three months. New vaccine mandates for federal workers, large employers, and healthcare workers are set to take effect December 8th. The Biden administration is pushing ahead with that plan, despite calls to push the deadline to 2022. It would be a mistake. Military service members are also now facing vaccine mandates. The deadline for the Air Force is just a day away. More than 96 percent of active duty members are now vaccinated. Jake, with all that progress, we're also seeing more schools across the country easing their COVID-related restrictions. Miami-Dade County Public Schools announcing today that their middle schools and high schools can now give parents the option to opt their children out of mandatory masking. The school district noting that that is a function of the improved health conditions, and they're saying you could see a further easing of restrictions for even younger students in just the coming days. Jake? All
0: right. Alexander Field with some Good news. Thanks. The final hours of voting are underway now in Virginia. What the race might signal for Democrats and for Republicans. That's next. In our politics lead, tomorrow's off-year elections feature high-stakes contests for governor in Virginia and in New Jersey, big city mayors' races, including in New York and Atlanta and Boston. As well as some special House races and the fate of the Minneapolis Police Department as it exists right now. The marquee race, undoubtedly, however, is the race for Virginia governor, where an upset by the Republican is a very real possibility. In a state that Biden won by 10 percentage points just a year ago. CNN's Jeff Zeleny is keeping track of the candidates as they make their final pushes for votes.
2: One final push for votes in Virginia. Let's go, everybody. Let's get it out. Democrat Terry McAuliffe is seeking a second act as Virginia's governor. But on election eve, he's locked in a bitter duel with Republican businessman Glenn Youngkin.
13: The entire nation is watching this.
2: All eyes are on Virginia. A year after President Biden won the Commonwealth by 10 points, Republicans are riding a wave of energy. They hope to spark a party resurgence as Democrats scramble to keep their party together and avoid an embarrassing defeat. We have a moment right now, a new path forward that isn't dependent on 43 years of political favors. Virginia elects its governors the year after the presidential race. Since 1970, the party out of power in the White House has won every time, except once in 2013 when McAuliffe narrowly carried the state after President Obama's re-election. We can't get this done unless we keep this positive momentum going. This time, the political headwinds facing Democrats are strong, even with a parade of party stars visiting over the last month. Tonight, more than 1.1 million Virginians have already voted, casting their ballots early. Aides to both campaigns tell CNN they expect a record turnout for a governor's race, with most of the electorate voting on Tuesday. The race has emerged as a proxy war for the popularity of the current president and the former one. That's what you got with Glenn Trumpkin. With Donald Trump set to call into a rally tonight after praising Youngkin in a news statement, saying, we get along very well together and strongly believe in many of the same policies. Hoping to woo independent voters, McAuliffe has repeatedly tried tying Youngkin to Trump.
7: Donald Trump and Glenn Youngkin are trying to run down the democracy of this country, and we will not tolerate it.
2: For months, Youngkin has walked a careful line on the Trump tightrope, trying to energize the former president's loyal followers without alienating independents and even Republicans turned off by Trump. He's tapped into the latest front on the culture wars, from vaccine mandates to what kids learn and read in the classroom, It's put the power of the parents' movement at the center of the race. This is no longer a campaign. This is a movement led by parents, led by Virginians. So by so many measures, Jake, it is clear that the momentum is with Yunkin in the final hours of this race. However, with so many early votes already counted, uh, we have to factor that in as well. But it is closing in the Northern Virginia suburbs here in Fairfax County and in neighboring Loudoun County. Those, of course, are the two final campaign stops for McAuliffe and Yunkin this evening. President Biden won these counties dramatically just a year ago. So one thing is clear: Yunkin is going after those Biden voters.
0: Jeff Selene on the campaign trail in Virginia. Thanks, and be sure to join CNN tomorrow night for Election Night in America. I'm going to lead coverage of the key governor's races in Virginia and New Jersey, plus the New York City mayoral race. Live special coverage starting tomorrow on CNN at 6 p.m. Eastern. Coming up from White Castle to the White House, actor Cal Penn is now sharing a major revelation about his life. Stay with us. In our pop culture lead today, he is a self-described skinny brown kid from New Jersey, but you might know him as Dr. Lawrence Kuttner or Garrett Modi, or simply as Kumar. Actor Cal Penn is the son of Indian immigrants who's been making us laugh and smile and emote on the big and small screens for more than 20 years. But after a stint at the Obama White House, he's now written a brand new memoir. It's called You Can't Be Serious. It's about his years growing up in a predominantly white suburb in Jersey, the racism he faced in Hollywood, and why he felt drawn to public service. Plus, so much more. The book comes out tomorrow, and Cal Penn, actor, writer, producer, former White House staffer, joins me now. Uh, Cal, I told you, I read the book over the weekend. It's, it's yeah, fantastic. Thank you. It's really good. Thank you. Um, we've covered a lot of anti-Asian racism this year. I suppose that's East Asian racism, and you would be more South Asian racism. but, but Same umbrella. Yeah. One of the most appalling and engrossing parts of your book deals with the racism you experienced in showbiz. and. It, it all started really with one of your first big breaks in the year 2000 for an episode of Sabrina the Teenage Witch. And here's a clip.
14: I say we do our project on the gold rush.
3: Mm, I say prohibition.
14: What is so wrong with the expedition of Lewis and Clark?
3: Oh, no, that's...
14: And time
0: and again, you write in your book, producers forced you to use an Indian accent.
14: Yeah, that one in particular sort of summed up a lot of the experiences I had. I I remember that, you know, that was a show that my little cousins watched that I thought, wow, I'm auditioning for a project. It's a kid in a study group with Sabrina made up this whole backstory about this guy who is from Seattle, uh, loves small batch organic coffee, you know, the silliness that you kind of put into any of, any of your backstory stuff. And I get to work and they say, we want you to do it with an Indian accent. And I sort of thought, well, maybe they're just ignorant. Maybe they don't know. And I talked about how I I'd grounded the character. It might be funnier without an accent. And They said, no, 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 it's funny. You're going to do it with an accent. And then I said, well... You know, I never grew up getting to see people who looked like me, so I'd really appreciate it if I could do it without an accent. I have little cousins. It might be nice for them to see, you know, a depiction that kind of looks like, looks and feels like us. And I remember the director said, you know, your little cousins should be lucky that you're allowed on TV to begin with, and so should you. And he walked off. And the reason I recount that in the book is is not to kind of dig up old memories, but because that was sort of commonplace in those days. And I'm so glad that the industry I love has moved so far forward. But there were, I mean, I had people tell me, go home and put a bedsheet on your head because you're not wearing a turban. Uh, ask me why I such speak such good English. Uh, and, you know, like, because I'm from New Jersey and we speak really good English, but uh, it, there were there were days that I, I know by 2021 standards, thankfully, we look back at that and say that was not OK. But there's still remnants of that for sure that, uh, that yeah. continue to change. I mean, it's still relatively
0: recent. We're just talking about since the <laughs> yeah, year 2000.
14: True. I mean, you've talked about
0: how important representation is for people of color for years. And back in 2017, you tweeted... Found a bunch of my old scripts from some of my first years trying to be an actor and the cast description, casting description includes Gandhi lookalike, snake charmers, fire eaters, sand artists. You say the industry has changed. Has it changed enough?
14: I think that uh, if you ask anybody, they'll say it's changed leaps and bounds, and there's always room to grow. There's always room to continue to change. The reason that I shared those, you know, was was not uh, not to say woe is me, but to just sort of highlight the barriers to entry uh, that especially performers of color face. Of course, for many of those roles, I said no. For a lot of them, I said yes. I'll do it because I need to credit on my resume. So, you know, the end result of that was having the chance to do things like Harold and Kumar or the namesake or House. Um, but I, th- I think one of the big things that's that's Helped television and entertainment change for the better are the streaming platforms: Netflix, Amazon, Hulu. If you think about the content that they have, they're oftentimes outside of the purview of race or gender, uh, any of that stuff, and they just make great, compelling characters that everyone wants to watch, no matter no matter what the characters are, no matter who we are.
0: Yeah, and, and, and your struggles, you know, in some ways, I'm sure you paved the way for for Mindy Kaling or for Aziz Ansari or, or, or for others. Um, eventually, you end up at the Obama White House as a principal associate director in the Office of Public Engagement under uh, President Obama. Uh, and you have said that for you, it was never about politics. It was about public service. Do you think that you might ever again return to public service in some capacity, including uh, being in a White House aide?
14: You know, the, I, I know I, I tell the story in the book over over the years about how my grandparents who marched with Gandhi in the Indian Independence Movement, the stories they told me as a kid like when they tried to get me to eat my carrots, the, the coercive stories that every grandparent tells you, uh, my grandparents happened to tell those stories about what it was like being jailed and beaten by British soldiers. And the seven-year-old me was probably just like, oh God, there Grandpa goes again, another <laughs> Gandhi story. But as I got older, obviously realizing nonviolent civil disobedience, the ties that have to our own Civil rights movement inspired the opportunity to, to, to serve uh, at, at the White House. I don't think I would run for office, which I think was your actual question. Yeah, um, but I would love to I would love to continue helping out. I've made no secret of the fact that, you know, in retirement, I'd love to maybe be an ambassador, work in the cultural diplomacy space and put my private sector arts experience to use.
0: A lot of competitive congressional seats in New Jersey, I'm just saying.
14: You know, a lot more stoner movies to make, too, though.
0: (laughs) One of the things that's interesting is you write about your partner, Josh. Uh, You write about your sexuality in a very matter-of-fact way. Uh, You've been together for 11 years. You've been engaged for two years. But I think a lot of people probably didn't know you were gay. Uh, Why did this feel like the right time to tell the public? And, And talk a little bit about the decision you made to write about it the way you did, which was kind of like as if we all already knew.
14: Yeah, thank you. So, I mean, one of the big goals of of the book was A, to make people laugh and B, feel like you're just having a beer with me or four or five beers, depending on how long it takes you to read the book. Uh, and part of that was was sharing a lot more experiences. I mean, Josh, have been, Josh and I have been together for 11 years. I'm really happy to share that chapter with folks. Um, that chapter, to your point, is a love story ensconced in NASCAR, because our second date, uh, I mean, you know this from from uh, working in DC, like Sundays were my only days off as a staffer. So when Josh and I met, I was like, why don't you just come over, we'll watch some TV or something. So it's a Sunday afternoon. He comes over with an 18 back, eighteen pack of Coors Light and turns my TV to NASCAR. And immediately I'm like, all right, well. This dude's gonna leave with sixteen of those beers because this is not gonna work out. <laughs> um, and then next thing you know, we're you know we're together for quite a while. He like my parents sort of shun uh, the public eye, you know, and I, I wanted to respect that uh, when we codified our relationship, I just sort of thought I'd like to be respectful of him the same way that I'm respectful of my parents. So when they've uh, been introduced to all my work friends or have come to movie sets or, or premieres, uh, it's funny to see how quickly they'll exit the car and sort of like go through a side entrance, <laughs> get the popcorn and wait for me to do all my interviews. Um, and then when it was time to put the memoir together, I just, you know, I, I talked to them all and I said, there's so many great fun stories that I'd love to be able to share with with people. Are you okay with that? I, I, you know, And they said, sure, go ahead. You can share a couple of adorable stories, Cal. Put them in the book, but just a couple.
0: <laughs> well, anyway, the book is a great read. I read it in a day on Saturday, you. as you know, because I was texting you while reading yeah. it. You can't be serious, Cal Pen <laughs> author of You Can't Be Serious. It's out tomorrow, November 2nd. Check it out. It's a fun read. Thank you so much, Cal.
14: Thanks, Jake. Nice to talk
0: to you. Senator Joe Manchin appears to have possibly just blown up Democrats' latest attempt to try to pass Biden's agenda this week. I'm going to talk to a leading moderate Democrat in the House next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, thousands of New York City firefighters are out sick today after a COVID vaccine mandate goes into effect. Plus, A CNN exclusive out of Afghanistan, CNN witnesses desperate families who say they're being forced to sell their young daughters in order to survive. And leading this hour, President Biden today hoping to lead the world against the climate crisis. The president saying the eyes of history are on the International Climate Summit underway now in Scotland. Yet back here in Washington, D.C., President Biden's agenda, including provisions to address the climate crisis, have hit yet another roadblock. In moments, I'm going to speak with moderate Democrat and co-chair of the Bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus, Congressman Josh Gottheimer. But first, CNN Chief White House Correspondent Caitlin Collins joins me live from Edinburgh, Scotland. And Caitlin, this is a a pivotal moment for President Biden on the world stage, but I'm sure it doesn't escape the notice of his counterparts that whatever Biden is saying, he has still not yet been able to get Democrats on board to actually pass legislation to accomplish his climate goals.
3: Yeah, Jake, and the president seemed to get at that pretty bluntly today in his remarks to the world leaders here on the first day of this summit, acknowledging where the United States' standing on this issue has been over the last several years. Of course, a clear reference to the policies of his predecessor. But now, Jake, on day one, when he is trying to convince these other world leaders that the United States is headed in the right direction, we are seeing this key moderate senator and Senator Joe Manchin, who has been at the center of these negotiations, potentially talk about delaying a timeline, of course, for advancing what the president says is a critical part of his agenda. President Biden issuing an urgent call for action.
7: We meet with the eyes of history upon us.
3: At the biggest global climate summit in years, the president warning the planet is in peril and the world is at an inflection point.
7: Will we act? Will we do what is necessary? Will we seize the enormous opportunity before us?
3: Biden pledging the U.S. will take the lead on combating climate change as his own climate ambitions face critical tests at home and abroad.
7: My administration is working overtime to show that our climate commitment is action, not
3: words. Biden promising the U.S. will keep its word and apologizing after his predecessor withdrew the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accords.
7: I guess I shouldn't apologize, but I do apologize for the fact the United States... Uh, the last administration pulled out of the Paris, accords and
3: put us sort of behind needful. The president touting his own plan to reduce emissions that's still awaiting passage by Democrats in Washington.
7: My Build Back Better framework will make historic investments in clean energy.
3: While the president's top aides planned to show a force at the global climate summit in Glasgow, there were some notable no-shows, including China, the world's biggest polluter, Russia, and Saudi Arabia. Biden calling their absence a disappointment.
7: Not only Russia, but China basically didn't show up in terms of any commitments to deal with climate change. And there's a reason why people should be disappointed in that. Um, I, I, I found it disappointing myself.
3: But today, Biden declined to call out China directly and instead called for global cooperation.
7: None of us can escape the worst that's yet to come. There's no more time to hang back or sit in the fence or argue amongst ourselves. To be
3: Now, Jake, when it comes to the president's own agenda, he did tell us last night in a press conference he is confident that it will get passed through Congress. He said potentially as soon as this week, though he did have had a caveat that he's not completely sure, of course, when exactly that timing will happen. And in light of that statement from Senator Manchin this afternoon, we quickly got a response from the White House saying they are confident that in the end they will gain Senator Manchin's support, Jake.
0: All right, Caitlin Collins in Edinburgh, Scotland. Thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN Chief Congressional Correspondent Manu Raju. Manu, a lot of Democrats expected the vote on the president's. Economic and climate agenda, the Build Back Better Act this week. Is that even possible after Manchin's annou-
1: announcement today? It's unclear exactly how that's going to play out. There are negotiations behind the scenes to get to make changes to that large $1.75 trillion plan. And it's also unclear whether Joe Manchin will be there at the end of the day. He is even threatening to vote against the plan if it were to come up in, his, in a form that he believes could hurt the economy, could add to the debt add to inflation. Can those be resolved? That remains to be seen. But in a hopeful sign for the White House, there are new indications that the separate bill the infrastructure package could get a final vote in the House in the coming days. That's because progressives who had been demanding that Joe Manchin and Kyrsten Sinema sign off on the larger Build Back Better agenda before they agree to vote for the infrastructure plan are saying they will no longer demand those two senators commit to supporting it. They're saying they're going to leave the White House to deal with that. And Pramila Jayapal, the head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, said that once the negotiations are done with the larger package... Her caucus is ready to vote in support of both bills.
10: We are ready, um, pending some final negotiations on things we care very much about. Once we have those, we will be happy to vote both those bills. And I'm hoping that can happen as soon as tomorrow. The president came to the caucus and said he uh, assured us that he would get 51 votes in the Senate.
1: So that is a shift. Rather than them demanding a vote, uh, assurances from Joe Manchin, they're saying they're going to let Joe Biden deal with it in and of itself. So, Jake, this could play out like this. Once they get the negotiations done, the House could potentially have enough votes to finally send that legislation, the infrastructure bill, to Joe Biden's desk. And if they get enough votes, just a three-vote margin, she can, always, Pelosi can only vote, to three votes in the House to pass the larger bill. If they get the votes out of the House, then it'll be up to the Senate, and negotiation with Joe Manchin will continue to see if his board will ultimately be there to pass that plan
0: all right Mani Raju, thank you so much here to discuss democratic congressman josh gottheimer of new jersey he's the co-chair of the problem solvers caucus congressman thanks for joining us so you have remained optimistic uh, about the bipartisan infrastructure bill throughout this whole process you said it would get done in september you said it would get done last week now it was looking like tuesday might be the day uh, it sounds like it's going to happen uh, this week, no matter what. Uh, are you surprised that the progressives are going to go along with this, even though Joe Manchin uh, has made his vote on the larger Build Back Better Act unclear?
15: Listen, I'm obviously would be very pleased if we can get a vote on this bipartisan infrastructure package, which you know we've talked about. It's been sitting in the House waiting since early August for action. And you know, I was on uh, knocking on some doors this weekend with people who are running for office. You know, we're up tomorrow for elections back in Jersey, and I consistently heard the same thing: When are you going to get those roads and bridges done? When are we going to finally vote? When are you guys going to finally vote on that bipartisan infrastructure package? So I think the country wants it. You know, there's so much in there that's good, whether that's fixing uh, the Gateway Tunnel and getting that built between New York and New Jersey, it's transit, it's broadband, it's fighting climate change. There's so much that's important. But I think also we need to get the reconciliation package forward moving on that. And as you as you heard, uh, and or as I just heard a minute ago, Pramila say that we've really, we're, we have to keep working through those issues. We're close there too. We can't, you know, we, we, we continue to negotiate in good faith. And I think that's how, we, you know, have to keep moving both, both packages forward here. Have you talked to Senator Manchin or Senator Sinema? Because it seems
0: as though what I'm hearing is that the progressives are saying, we have a deal to pass both and we're going to hold that up. We're going to, we're going to honor that, even though Mansion and cinema have still not come out and said they're going to vote for the Build Back Better Act that we want. I mean,
15: are you what, confident you know, ultimately what, that Mansion and cinema are going to vote for it? I am confident that we'll get there. They've been pretty clear all along the way that they'll support they support a reconciliation package, and they haven't you know they haven't backed off of that. Listen, I, I understand, and I don't speak for them, but I, I listened to Joe Manchin today as well. I understand his frustration that we haven't voted. The president came to the Hill on Thursday. He said, "I need your vote on infrastructure to the whole Democratic caucus," and and some people just refuse to let that go forward. That's fr- very very frustrating, especially when you're hearing back home that people want us to get this done. So I'm really glad that people are coming. together. We all worked all weekend to just keep talking and working back and forth to, to try to work through these last details. We're close. We've got to get both bills done. It's really important. Um, and, I'm, and it starts with getting this infrastructure bill done. And I'm really hopeful we can get a vote on this this week. I've, I've gotten out of the prediction business uh, after, after these last weeks. Every time I feel like we're very close. But the bottom line is, what is clear is this is a bipartisan bill that must get done. And there's, there's, you know, the country wants it. There's two million jobs a year on the line. You're talking about fixing our, our crumbling roads and bridges and tunnels. There's so much in there that matters. We've got to get that across the finish line. For the president, he asked... Us to get it done so we better deliver
0: there's also still major sticking points to work out in the build back better act on allowing medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices senator sanders says he's still trying to get that in the bill uh, if this does come to a vote this week uh, build back better do you think that provision allowing medicare to negotiate
15: with pharmaceutical companies to lower drug prices will that be in it well, there's a lot of conversation, as you know, still going on about prescription drug provisions. I think we will get prescription drug provisions in there. You know, the final details yet have to be worked out. You know, we're, we're still talking about other, there's still other questions that have to come up. We're, we're holding off on get, trying to get some scoring, as you know. We're waiting on, uh, join, uh, from the White House promised us some numbers there that I think are gonna be really important. Um, so, so we're still waiting on information, but again, everyone is operating in good faith right now. Everyone is at the table working hard to get this done. And I think that's what we need to do keep working until we get that across the finish line. But again, no reason to hold up the bipartisan infrastructure package, which is a separate bill. It's, a, it's been voted on out of the Senate with 69, 69 senators sitting, waiting for action here. Let's get that done. And you know, and, and again, I'm really optimistic we'll get the reconciliation package or the Build Back Better package done as well.
0: Congressman, help me understand. Is there any other reason beyond the fact that Big Pharma gives a lot of money to politicians? Is there any other reason to deny Medicare the ability to negotiate drug prices. It's not as though they're demanding free drugs.
15: It's just allowing a negotiation. Well, as you probably know, there are plenty of provisions that we're talking about right now to get the prices down, and there's provisions uh, that will allow for negotiating in some of what's being talked about. Again, the final negotiations are still going on, so I don't want to get ahead of it, but I think at the end of the day, what is clear, and I believe strongly, we've got to get the cost of prescription drugs down for folks. Just like we've know, we got to make life more affordable for folks all across the board. As you know, I'm fighting to reinstate the state and local tax deduction or SALT. That will be part of this package as well, because overall, we've got to make life more affordable for, for folks. I know that's a big issue in my district and I'm going to keep working for it.
0: You've been working behind the scenes to try to get uh, House Republicans to vote for uh, this bipartisan infrastructure measure. At the end of the day, how many Republicans do you think will vote for it?
15: Well, there's been a lot of back and forth, and, and, and you know, if it, if it were a few months ago, we would have had a lot more, you know, if this, but I'll tell you, I, I feel good that we'll get some Republicans as well. You know, there were many who were part of helping craft this, Democrats and Republicans. If you look at how the infrastructure bill came together, we started working back in April, Democrats uh, and Republicans in the House and the Senate sitting together, actually helping craft a bill that we need, right? Everything from broadband to dealing getting lead out of the drinking water all came together by working together, and now we're going to get some of those Republicans behind it, and, and that's going to be a key part of, of the win for the country, I hope, this week. And I hope that's what, what as we get done. But as you know, um, there's still things to work out on the other package.
0: This is legitimately a bipartisan bill. It was drafted by Democrats and Republicans. Why would there be some
15: Republicans that would have voted for it a couple months ago, but not today? What's the reasoning? Well, you should ask them about that. You know, I'll, I'll tell you this, though. Added that if you look at what happened in the Senate, just to remind everyone, we had 50, all 50 Senate Democrats and 19 Republicans. You had everyone, right, from, from Joe Manchin to Bernie Sanders to Mitch McConnell vote on that package. It had great momentum. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm, again, I'm optimistic we'll have Democrats and Republicans voting for the infrastructure package. Uh, but, but like everybody, people are frustrated with this back and forth and sitting here and not, and holding this, you know, holding this bill up instead of voting for it when we know it's waiting to get shovels in the ground and people to work. And it's delay after delay, even after the president asked us to vote for it. So I think you're seeing a lot of frustration, and I get it, but now we got to get it done, and and we will. And and I can't stress enough that people are really working closely together. Everyone was talking all weekend on working out those last-minute issues on on the other package, and I'm optimistic we'll get there, too, as long as we can work through some of those issues.
0: All right, Democratic Congressman Josh Gottheimer from the Garden State. Thanks so much. Appreciate it Thanks time. so
15: much. Thanks for having me.
0: A CDC panel is set to decide whether young kids can get the Pfizer vaccine. We're going to talk to a former member of that panel next. Plus, the Supreme Court today hearing arguments in one of the most controversial and anticipated cases. That's ahead. In our national lead, hundreds of firefighters in New York City called out sick today in an apparent effort to protest the city worker vaccine mandate, which kicked in Friday night. Listen to Mayor de Blasio's warning.
1: Do the right thing, come to work, protect people, as you took an oath to do. And look, um, this is something that we don't tolerate. In the end, when people do this kind of thing, there are consequences.
0: Let's go right to CNN's Polo Sandoval, live in New York. Polo, how are fire department leaders responding to this sick out?
16: Well, you know, Jake, one of the most important key points here is about 81 percent right now of the FDNY is already in compliance with that mandate. So it's a vast majority of them. And that number is certainly higher than what we expect. The number that has been, I sh- we should note, slowly tickling, uh, t- ticking up here. Now, when it comes to those sick outs, about 2300 FDNY personnel have called in sick so far as of today. That's according to New York City's fire commissioner. And according uh, to that commissioner, he believes that many of those are firefighters uh, who aren't sick, who are calling it sick using that as an opportunity to protest this mandate that's now in place, requiring all New York City employees to have at least one shot of a COVID vaccine before they can head back to work or uh, go on unpaid leave. Uh, we heard from various uh, uh, unions that represent these fi- firefighters responding to those remarks that were made not just by uh, the fire commissioner, but also by Mayor Bill de Blasio.
2: No one on this board would ever condone anyone using uh, our medical leave policies fortunately. And uh, we agree with the commissioner on that. We don't believe it's going on.
16: So here's the other big question. How is that or how is that not affecting public safety here in New York City? Well, I can tell you that 18 fire companies have been taken out of operation. Now, for important context, that's 18 out of 350. Uh, no firehouses have closed. Just to give you an example, the one that you see here behind me, you can see how it houses multiple fire companies. So simply because one of them is not in operation does not mean that the uh, uh, that the entire house is, is basically shut down here. Uh, authorities here in New York at the city level uh, assuring the public that they are responding to every call that comes in here, but nonetheless, they are having to uh, move some of their resources around to make sure uh, that everybody's covered here. And finally, uh, an important number to share with you, roughly uh, 9,000 municipal workers were sent home uh, today on unpaid leave, but at the end of the day, 91% of the entire workforce is in compliance with the mandate.
0: All right, Polo Sandoval in New York City, thanks so much. Uh, Let's bring in Dr. Julie Morita. She's the executive vice president of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation for our health lead. Uh, Dr. Marita, from a public health perspective, how should the country weigh the risk of unvaccinated first responders versus the risk of having understaffed police departments or fire departments?
11: Well, I think it's really important to understand why it is the fire department employees aren't getting vaccinated. I mean, I think it goes for any group of people who aren't choosing not to get vaccinated is to understand why. I think we spend a lot of time working with communities to get into the communities and hear and listen to them. We also need to do the same thing with these fire department employees to understand what it is that's triggering them or preventing them from getting vaccinated. Many of the people that we've heard about have had problems with questions about their own personal health, a specific underlying health condition, and whether that's a reason to not get vaccinated. So they really need to talk to their healthcare providers or trusted sources. There's so much misinformation out there. It's really critical to get the right facts into their hands so they can really make an informed decision.
0: Let's say that for a lot of them, it has to do with uh, their concept of freedom and not thinking that the government has any right to tell them uh, what shots they have to inject into their body.
11: I think you know the reason that we are the mandates are in place is because the COVID is a communicable disease and it spreads from person to person very easily. And we've seen incredible success with vaccine mandates as it relates to childhood vaccines and school requirements or influenza vaccine in healthcare settings. So we know that with infectious diseases that are spread from person to person, that these mandates really work. And so in this particular situation where we have a really serious disease that is causing people to be hospitalized and die, these mandates are appropriate.
0: Tomorrow is a big day for Vaccines for Kids. A key CDC panel will decide whether or not to recommend Uh, this smaller Pfizer dose for kids 5 to 11. You used to be on the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. Take us inside the decision-making process. How does it work?
11: Yeah, so this is a critical step in terms of approving the vaccines for children or for adults. And it's tried and true. It's been in place for many decades. The committee itself is 15 independent physicians, some infectious disease experts and internal medicine physicians, pediatricians, some that are in research, some that are doing public health. They look at the data, they evaluate the data, and they make the best recommendations regarding how the vaccine should be administered, who should get them, how frequently they should get them. And so tomorrow, that committee will be weighing the evidence that FDA reviewed last week. And we'll be making a recommendation regarding the vaccination for children 5 to 11 years of age.
0: The American Academy of Pediatrics says that more than 101,000 kids tested positive in the U.S. just over the past week. Uh, Cases for kids have been steadily declining. That's still a, a very high number. How important is it for parents to get their kids vaccinated as soon as their kids are eligible?
11: Well, we know that children are getting sick. And while we down, they, there wasn't as much attention being paid for them early on in the pandemic, uh, we do know that millions of children have gotten infected, thousands of children hospitalized, and that some children have actually died because of COVID. So it's critical that they get vaccinated. The vaccines are safe. They're effective based on FDA's re- review. And uh, if once ACIP makes the recommendation, then I'm hoping the vaccine will start rolling out.
0: All right, Dr. Marina, thank you so much. Good to see you again. Coming up next, a disturbing look at the crisis in Afghanistan, where CNN witnessed desperate families who say that conditions are so bad they're being forced to sell their young daughters in order to survive. Stay with us. We're back with our world lead now in a distressing story out of Afghanistan showing the harsh reality Of the humanitarian crisis engulfing the country, especially post-Taliban rule, desperate families so impoverished, they tell CNN they have no choice but to sell their young daughters into some twisted form of marriage. In this exclusive report, CNN witnesses the tragic fate facing these helpless little girls in this culture where girls and women are too often treated horrifically. The parents gave us full access and permission to talk to the children and show their faces because they say they cannot change the practice themselves. CNN's Anna Korin reports.
17: In this arid, desolate landscape, not a scrap of vegetation in sight, lies a makeshift camp for some of Afghanistan's internally displaced. (laughs) Among its residents, nine-year-old Pawana. Her bright pink dress, squeals of laughter and childhood games, a ruse to the horrors unfolding in this unhospitable environment. (laughs) Pawana's family moved to this camp in Baghdis province four years ago after her father lost his job. Humanitarian aid and menial work earning $3 a day, providing the basic staples to survive. But since the Taliban takeover two and a half months ago, any money or assistance has dried up. And with eight mouths to feed, Pawana's father is now doing the unthinkable. I have no work, no money, no food. I have to sell my daughter, he says. I have no other choice. Pawana, who dreams of going to school and becoming a teacher, applies makeup. A favourite pastime for little girls – But Pawana knows she is preparing for what awaits her. My father has sold me, because we don't have bread, rice and flour, he has sold me to an old man. The white-bearded man who claims he's 55 years old comes to collect her. He's bought Pawana for 200,000 Afghanis, just over 2,000 US dollars. Covered up, Pawana whimpers as her mother holds her This is your bride, please take care of her, says Pawana's father Of course I will take care of her, replies the man His large hands grab her small frame Pawana tries to pull away As he carries her only bag of belongings She again resists, digging her heels into the dirt. But it's futile. The fate of this small, helpless child has been sealed. Child marriage is nothing new in poor, rural parts of Afghanistan. But human rights activists are reporting an increase in cases because of the economic and humanitarian crisis engulfing the country.
9: These are devastating decisions that no parent should ever have to make and it really speaks to what an extraordinary breakdown is happening in Afghanistan right now.
17: For months, the UN has been warning of a catastrophe as Afghanistan, a war-ravaged, aid-dependent country, descends into a brutal winter. Billions of dollars in central bank assets were frozen after the Taliban swept to power in August. Banks are running out of money, wages haven't been paid for months while food prices soar. According to the UN, more than half the population doesn't know where their next meal is coming from. And more than three million children under the age of five face acute malnutrition in the coming months.
1: People of Afghanistan need a lifeline.
17: And while a billion dollars has been pledged by UN donors to help the Afghan people, less than half those funds have been received as the international community holds off recognising the Taliban government. People of Afghanistan
6: will be dying of hunger in the next couple of months, and not just a few. This is just making people more and more vulnerable, and we
17: we cannot accept that. Sentiments shared by the Taliban.
1: We are asking aid agencies to come back to Afghanistan and help these poor people, otherwise the crisis
6: will worsen.
17: For this family in neighbouring Gore province, they are trying to sell two daughters, nine-year-old Litan and four-year-old Zeton for a thousand U.S. dollars each. Do you know why they're selling you? The journalist asks Zeton. <laughs> because we are a poor family and don't have any food to eat, she says.
11: <laughs> are you
17: scared? He <laughs> asks. <laughs> yes, I am. Another family in Gore Province borrowed money from their 70-year-old neighbour. Now he's demanding it back, but they have nothing to give except their 10-year-old daughter, Magal. My daughter doesn't want to go and is crying all the time. I am so ashamed, he says. Terrified, she threatens to take her life. If they push me to marry the old man, I will kill myself. I don't want to leave my parents. Days later, she discovers the sale has been finalised. Another Afghan child sold into a life of misery. Jake, it is just gut-wrenching knowing what these young girls will be subjected to and just an update on young Magul, uh, the last girl in our story there. She will be handed over to the 70-year-old man uh, in the coming days. Uh, It's just a tragic fate that awaits this young girl. Now, if the aid situation is not addressed urgently, the UN projects, Jake, that by the middle of next year, 97% 97 percent of Afghans will be living below the poverty line not meaning that uh, hunger and starvation we're facing these people alone but that other girls will end up like magal and pawana Jake
0: yeah this is such a horrible story it's so tough to watch you you know that this this happened this mm. this tradition this awful thing was predated uh, the Taliban taking over again but How has the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan earlier this year made it worse? How has it exacerbated this problem of families selling their daughters?
17: uh Absolutely. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. This has been around for f- forever. However, from the local journalists that, that we've been speaking to and, and working with, they say that once upon a time it was behind closed doors. Now it is out in the open. Uh, the international community is obviously refusing to recognise the Taliban as the official government and as a result they are freezing billions of dollars in reserves that would you know, otherwise go to the people of... Afghanistan. They're doing this to, to try and hold the Taliban to account, especially on their record regarding human rights of women and, and, and of young girls. But by punishing the Taliban, it means that that money is not getting to Afghans most vulnerable, which obviously includes the girls in our peace, Jake.
0: Really tough, really tough to watch. Anna Corin, thank you so much for that important story. Coming up, widespread cancellations for the third day in a row. A closer look at the major issues facing U.S.-based airlines. Stay with us. And our money leads stuck, frustrated, cursing cancellations. That was where thousands of passengers found themselves after a spiraling few days for American Airlines. Since Friday, American has canceled more than 2,100 flights, leaving passengers scrambling To rebook or cancel altogether. This time, it's American with the scheduling issues, but Southwest Airlines had a similar problem less than a month ago. CNN's Pete Mantine is digging into why these delays keep happening.
13: American Airlines passengers are now the latest victims of airlines pushed to the max as people rush back to travel.
4: They just keep canceling
13: and canceling. I'm sure it's terrible for a lot of people places to be and family to be
8: with. Incredibly wow. frustrating. Americans it's
13: awful. Four days of issues kicked off Thursday when the airline says high winds hit its Dallas hub. American says that started a chain reaction of cancellations that left workers out of position. In a memo, American says it wanted to create certainty for flight crews, so it began proactively canceling flights, leaving thousands stuck waiting in long lines and on the phone for hours.
15: I don't understand why it's canceled. I've heard uh, they don't have enough staff. Well, you sold me a product. I paid for it. Now it's your job to get me there.
13: American canceled more than 1,000 flights on Sunday alone. In all, more than one in every 10 American flights has been canceled since Friday. Similar issues hit Southwest Airlines three weeks ago, causing it to cancel more than 2,000 flights. But travel experts fear frustrations on the ground are getting dragged into the air. The FAA says flight crews have reported 4,941 incidents of unruly passengers this year alone. Just last week, an American Airlines flight had to divert to Denver after a passenger punched a flight attendant in the face and broke her nose.
7: This should not be part of their job.
13: In a video statement, American CEO Doug Parker called the incident one of the worst in its history and said the airline was fully pursuing punishment. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says a federal ban list for violent passengers should be on the table.
14: We will continue to look at all options to make sure that flight crews and passengers
13: are safe. Federal authorities discharged a California man for last week's assault. He is 20-year-old Brian Sue of Irvine. Airline unions have been pleading with the Department of Justice to get tough on unruly passengers. The FAA only has the power to impose civil fines, but not criminal charges.
0: Jake? All right, Pete Montine. thank you so much for that report. Turning to our politics lead now, the Supreme Court today, hearing arguments on the most closely watched issue on its docket this term, the restrictive Texas abortion law, which bans abortions around six weeks and encourages c- citizen vigilantes of a sort to sue anyone involved in an abortion. CNN's Joan Biskupic joins us now. Joan, you were in the room today. Did the justices give any hints as to how they might vote?
18: Yes, and Jake, it was great to be in the room. Remember, the justices are relatively new to this courtroom after more than a year and a half of isolation from the pandemic. And it was a very dramatic three hours of back and forth. I'll give you the lead first.
9: Yeah.
6: And
18: that's that uh, Justices Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh showed their hand in a way that suggests that they would vote in this round against Texas. They were two of the justices in the five justice majority that let this law take effect on September 1st. And they seem to suggest by their questions that they would allow at least the abortion clinics that have challenged this law to at least get into federal court, which might mean in upcoming days, the court would actually block the law from taking from being in effect while the litigation plays out. So that was the most important thing there. And then Chief Justice John Roberts, who actually had been against Texas initially uh, and had dissented when the court majority allowed this law to take effect, was quite skeptical of the Department of Justice case. Now, the clinics and DOJ have come in here and the chief said, you know, it's pretty broad what the federal government is arguing here. So I'm looking ahead to possibly some sort of split decision coming up. But remember, this is just the first phase, and what was at issue was not the right to abortion, uh, which, you know, essentially has been suspended in Texas during this. But yet, this unusual mechanism that you referred to that empowers private citizens to bring these cases, not Texas, not against Texas officials. Yeah,
0: and if there are opponents uh, of Roe v. Wade on that court, they're going to get another chance when the Mississippi law comes up.
18: That's right. On December 1st, the court will hear a much more direct challenge to Roe v. Wade. That's the Mississippi 15 week abortion ban. And that's when they could really take us back to before 1973 when Congress, when the court said women had a fundamental right to end a pregnancy.
0: Yeah. In fact, many court observers think that that is that is going to happen. All right, Joan Biskupic, thank you so much. Next, one CNN correspondent's personal battle. It involves a disease that impacts so many young children. Stay with us. In our national lead, cancer is the leading cause of death by disease for children in the United States, according to the National Cancer Institute. But of the total $6 billion budget in 2018 for that research group, only 5% of it was spent on researching pediatric cancer. For our colleague Renee Marsh, that lack of funding is personal. Her son Blake passed away this April of brain cancer. He was only two years old. And joining us now is CNN's Renee Marsh. She is author of a brand new book called The Miracle Workers, Boy Versus Beast. It comes out today. All of the proceeds go to the Blake Vince Payne Star Fund at the Pediatric Brain Tumor Foundation. And Renee... You you wrote this book, this beautiful, heartbreaking book, while your son was in the hospital. What, what inspired the characters?
9: So, I, I mean, this book is really a book of hope. And what inspired the characters was during my journey, uh, I found myself in a place where I was scrambling to find hope on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment, minute-to-minute basis and I just started thinking about this idea of instilling this idea of hope at a much younger age. Perhaps it'd be easier when you're an adult to deal with these sort of life circumstances. So in the book, uh, Blake is my Blake. But for anybody reading this book, it can be the child reading the book. And the monster for my family was pediatric cancer. But for any child reading this book, it could be bullying. It could be anything. We've all been through a lot in the last year and a half A pandemic. Uh, Children have lost caregivers. Uh, People have lost their jobs. It's a lot for children, and so my hope is uh, that this book will inspire the young children and their parents. And the other part of this is raising awareness and funds for pediatric cancer.
0: Yeah, and that's just which is so important. I should I should uh, underline that this book is a hopeful book. It, it was heartbreaking for me to read it because of because of your Blake. That's why I wrote, that's why it broke my heart. Um, I want to read one little section because um, you write, "The battle's not won by the physically strong. If you want to defeat a beast of this kind, the key is to the f- the key to the fight is right there in your mind." Um, that was a big theme during your time in the hospital.
9: Yeah, it was. Um because this idea of hope, I, I I will say to anyone going through a trying circumstance, that is the thing that we had, my husband and I had in our t- survival toolkit, was hope. And I truly believe to this day, if we were hopeless when going through this, we would not have survived that. Um, so that's what this message is all about. Um, just it's in the mind. Um, sometimes the story doesn't work out the way we want it to. Um, But imagine going through a heartbreaking situation and you're hopeless from the very beginning. Um, That, to me, is even worse. So that is what I hope the children will take away and their parents, too.
0: So our colleague Andrew Kaczynski and his wife Rachel, they also um, are fighting to raise money and awareness for childhood cancer, for pediatric cancer, after the death of their daughter Francesca, uh, who they called Beans. There she's there's little Beans. Um, who they lost. Where should parents turn for resources and knowledge if they find themselves in this unimaginable situation?
9: Yeah, I mean, I have partnered with the Pediatric Brain Tumor Foundation, which has an array of resources. Uh, There's the Children's Oncology Group as well. Uh, There are plenty of resources out there. But when you talk about Andrew, I mean, my goodness, he just ran a, a marathon to raise money for cancer. I'm writing a book to raise money for cancer. There are other parents um, selling T-shirts. They're shaving their heads. Uh, there's something wrong with th- this scenario. I mean, it's it's great that we're fighting for our children who are no longer here. But if this is the way that we're funding pediatric cancer, I think that as a nation, uh, we have to take a step back and try to figure out if if, if this is the way to do Yeah,
0: well, kids don't vote. Right. That's, so politicians, that's, that's one issue. Yeah. So politicians yeah. don't don't fund it. Last month, you spoke before Congress. You petitioned President Biden to, quote, include a comprehensive strategy to end pediatric cancer as part of his national plan. Is there any legislative momentum going on?
9: Here? There are two strong pieces of legislation the give children a chance act as well as the Gabriella Miller 2.0 act. Uh, they've been introduced in the House. Uh, Gabriella Miller has been introduced in the Senate. They have not been passed yet, but they are strong pieces of legislation. The problem with Washington is, Jake, that there is a will. There's no one that you will find in Washington who doesn't believe that we should fund pediatric cancer. But you know, as well as I know, getting things done in this town, uh, it's hard and it takes a long time. The problem is there are children in real time with this disease waiting on those decisions to be made, waiting on that funding to come through. So that is... heartbreaking issue at hand.
0: I've said it before and I'll say it again. The adult leaders of this country are failing the children of this country over and over. But thank God for you and thank God for Andrew Kaczynski and your spouses and and we love you and congratulations on this book. It's called The, The Miracle Workers, Boy Versus Beast. It's out today and again all proceeds will go to the Blake Vince Payne Star Fund at the Pediatric Brain Tumor Foundation. The foundation funds pediatric brain cancer research including a pioneering initiative to develop treatments for Blake's rare disease. Uh, I will I will be tweeting uh, out information about this so people know how to get it, where to get it. And and thank you again. So good to see you you again.
9: Thank you so much.
0: We'll be right back. Be sure to join CNN tomorrow for election night coverage. I'll lead coverage of the key governor's races in Virginia, New Jersey. Live special coverage starts tomorrow, 6 p.m. Eastern. Our coverage right now continues.
1: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the
12: Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you.